0: Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us.
1: Welcome back to the Next Picture Show Movie the Week podcast, devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with
2: Tasha Robinson and Genevieve Koski
1: no key tips again on this pairing but we're happy to have vulture critic jen cheney back due to covid protocols she hasn't been able to leave the recording studio all week so we appreciate her resolve uh on last week i do show, what i
3: have to do for the purposes of this podcast <laughs> do it you for mine it's a tough
1: it's a tough gig On last week's show, we talked about what's love got to do with it, the 1993 Tina Turner biopic based on I, Tina, the autobiography she wrote with Kurt Loder. Turner was notably uneasy with that film for various reasons, and she gets the opportunity to set the record straight with Tina, a new documentary on HBO. Unfolding in five parts, the film covers the ups and downs of Turner's life, from her difficult childhood in rural Tennessee, to her awful relationship with Ike Turner, to her unlikely and wildly successful reinvention and comeback as a pop star in the 1980s. It's also full of vintage performance footage for music history buffs, and lots of evidence of Turner's creative genius and formidable drive. And there's some good material about the making of What's Love Got to Do with It, which may be the first time in Next Picture Show history that our pairing has connected this directly. We'll talk about it after the break. The
0: The divorce, I got nothing. No money, no house. So I said, I'll just take my name. Oh, it. and then we try to get a record deal nobody would touch tina turn
1: she'd play anywhere just to make the money to get by
0: my dream is to be the first black rock and roll singer to pack places like the stones
1: when she became successful the past came up
0: Her story reached so many people who felt like they had to keep their secrets locked away deep down it's hard. One of the worst parts of your life has been an inspiration.
1: So what did everyone think of Tina, the HBO documentary? Jen, you you wrote a review of this for Vulture, so people can can see in detail what you thought of it. But tell us, what did you think of Tina?
3: I thought it was really, really well done. It really does, unlike what love got to do with it, cover the the full breadth of her career. And certainly it gets into the relationship with Ike. But basically, what's love got to do with it, that stuff kind of stops at about the 52 minute mark in this. And the remaining elements of the movie are about, you know, her trying to build up her own career, the difficulty she had with that initially, then finally recording Private Dancer, and then still getting asked about Ike all the time, um, which was the reason that she decided to co-write I, Tina with Kurt Loder, and still get, getting asked about it. And of course, when the movie came out, that only uh, magnified it again. But it, it goes even further beyond that to where she is now. I think she's 81 at this point. She got into another long term relationship that she's been in since the late 80s. and But they only married, um, I think it was in 2013. So relatively recently, but in what seems to be a very loving and healthy relationship, which is so nice to see. And I just appreciated the, the capacity to really look at You know, this woman is part of her story certainly is that relationship with Ike. And part of the reason people admire her so much is because she had the fortitude to get out of that relationship and then also later to talk about it publicly at a time when people simply weren't doing that. But as I said in my review, the other remarkable thing about Tina Turner that's maybe even more important is that she's Tina fucking Turner. And we get more (laughs) of of a sense of that and what that means, I think, from this documentary and you get to see her talking about herself directly to camera, which is something, you know, even though she co-wrote I Tina, it always feels like maybe there's, and certainly in what's left got to do with it, there's a filter in front of whatever the reality is, and it feels like watching Tina that that filter is finally taken away.
4: What struck me about Tina. Well, several things struck me about it, but uh, one thing I'll bring up because you also brought it up in your review, Jen, is towards the end where she's kind of musing about, you know, how does one kind of put a bow on their career? How how do they you know, what she say, like bow out gracefully or, you know, and, and arguably, she's kind of already done that she's been a, a Swiss citizen since the 90s, you know, which is actually something that I kind of wish this film had engaged with a little more. But maybe we can talk about that in, in connections when we, when we get back to uh, inaccuracies and whatnot. But as far as like, what Tina does well, I think it is just kind of interesting as an artifact of her career and her kind of being like, this is the last word. Like, this is how I want to be remembered with the full scope of my career, not just what you saw in that, you know, very popular movie and that autobiography from decades ago, like... I appreciate that it kind of has the storytelling component of it, like this is the Tina Turner story. It also has amazing performance footage and it uses it very liberally. And I think it uses juxtaposition very smartly with that performance footage and the, the interviews that surround it. And sometimes uh, the audio goes over top of it. I think it makes it a compelling watch beyond just like the narrative that it's telling in part just because it's impossible not to to watch Tina Turner when she is on your screen being Tina Turner on stage. She is a masterful performer, as we've said many times and we'll probably say again. So if this movie was nothing but archival performance footage, I think it would have value in that. But the fact that it has kind of this bigger framework of just being the the full picture of Tina's career as she wants it to be remembered. I think kind of gives it a little extra
2: heft.
1: What'd you think, Tasha?
2: I really enjoyed this film. I feel like it gives, what's love got to do with it? a lot of the backbone that it was missing just in terms of extra detail and extra information. And then it goes so much further into the questions you want answered after that movie. You know, how did she go about reinventing herself? What happened to her career that wasn't just a spite like Where did she go from there? Where is she now? What's going on? Like, all of these questions, I think, are Answered in a big and expansive and interesting way, but I think what struck me most about the film was just kind of the artfulness of the the montages, the one that opens it, the one that kind of gives us a very impressionistic feeling of what it must have been like to run away from an abusive husband with no money and onto a freeway. Uh, the one at the end there's just I wasn't entirely sold on the first one. It seemed a little a little flashy and overboard. But as soon as I got into kind of the rhythm of this doc and just saw like how much of this movie was going to be framed kind of in terms of these like flashes of ideas building up to this surprisingly emotionally nuanced whole, I was really into it. But also, above everything else, there is just the access. You know, the access to her unfiltered thoughts is a big thing. But the access, the endless access to her performing at every stage of her career, just about is fascinating. The costumes are fascinating. The watching the dance moves evolve over time is fascinating. Watching her strut her stuff as an older woman. And still, just be like both mesmerizing and just really openly sexual is kind of fun and exciting. So this movie told me a lot more about Tina Turner than than the first one. They told me a lot about Tina Turner that I didn't know, but it also just it felt in the best kind of way, like the kind of biopic where you're actually hanging out with the subject and getting to know them a little bit better on their terms.
1: Yeah, I mean the, the performance footage and just her evolution as an artist was really the big missing piece for me that this film filled in and, it, and, it, and it's a narrative that isn't separate from the Ike Turner narrative but is in certain respects and you kind of appreciate her as what, what she actually brought to the table as a creative person as a creative artist you know it, it, throughout the ages particularly when she reinvented herself and had this very strong and counterintuitive really idea of who she wanted to be what kind of a star she wanted to be and and what kind of arena she wanted to fill and then all the really fascinating detail about a song like what's love got to do with it which was in its original form (laughs) that
4: was amazing i had no idea it was like a cheesy euro pop song it's it's
1: catchy but it's like it was like a eurovision song or something right (laughs) um so uh, not, not even up to Icelandic qualities of, uh, <laughs> in terms of Eurovision. And then you see how her take on the material transforms it in that instance. And then she performs Help on mm-hmm. stage. And it's like, I've never even thought about interpreting that song the way she interprets it. And after all that we see that she's been through leading up to that point in her life, you know that song takes on a resonance that the Beatles never you know I mean it was not really you know it was still kind of a bouncy early Beatles song it was not didn't have anything like the weight that she brings to it so Would you it, was say good it didn't to see. have
4: any soul
1: <laughs> it did not have soul that's right and so I mean all that stuff was really good and all and all the stuff about what she had to do in that stretch between breaking it off with Ike and just surviving and take playing all of these Gigs and and you know where she was, you know where there was people were having dinner around her and or you know or she was you know the undercard in some crappy Vegas casino or something like that and she was just performing and gutting it out. I mean all that stuff is really interesting and and outside of you know the framework certainly of what's love got to do with it, but also you know just my understanding of her in general. So there was a lot. It was rich, you know, and it has. I mean that's what documentaries can do they can cut straight to the quick and be able to include a lot of things that a narrative feature cannot you know the feature has to make certain choices and those choices were made but we can at least see what was left out
2: that said this movie is blatant we don't need another hero erasure and it will not stand
3: (laughs) (laughs) that's so funny that my husband watched it with me and he was like why isn't there more about mad max beyond thunderdome like he was expecting like a half hour just on that
2: I could have done with a good solid like 10-15 minutes of I mean I I authentically wanted to know what it meant to her to become a movie star Mm -hmm. and uh, like a movie star coming into this franchise at arguably at least at that point the most interesting entry playing the most interesting character I would have liked a little more I mean obviously cinema buff uh, but that was the movie that put Tina Turner on my personal radar like that was uh, being much more a, a film person than a, a song person back then especially that was the movie that introduced me to her, kind of her larger than life persona and her her larger than life presence I just I found her really mesmerizing on screen and I wanted to know a lot more about her. And the fact that the film spends so little time with kind of the things she did in cinema, I think is actually a little disappointing. We kind of get that little blip of her on Hollywood squares talking about uh, booking film and TV because that was kind of the only way to go at the time. And then it just it doesn't seem like we dive deeply enough into the rest of it.
3: I absolutely could have done with more time just on the whole private dancer era period. They mentioned that she made that album in two weeks, but she made that album in two weeks. Like, that's wild. Um, and I would love to have understood more about that. I mean, and you know, just selfishly, there were songs that I wanted to hear. They didn't do You Better Be Good to Me at all. I was like, what? Come on. Where's some footage of that? One of the things I remember so vividly was when she, was, when she did Live Aid and she sang State of Shock with Mick Jagger, which was an extraordinary performance. I'm imagining they probably couldn't get the rights to, to show it, and it's certainly not like more important than some of the other things that she did on her own. But there was just an, an era there in the mid 80s where she was just, as they said, everywhere. And I just I wanted to kind of drink that up just a little bit more selfishly.
4: Well, and they come back a couple times to that People article where, where she kind of reveals uh, the, uh, what her relationship with Ike was like. And like the lead of that article or the, or the headline, you know, subhead or whatever is that she was the woman who taught Mick Jagger to dance, you know, like that's mm-hmm. a very, very compelling phrase and we don't get to see it you know we aren't really told of, about like the background of that line and like you can figure it out you know and, and you're right Jen there, there's probably rights issues that, that are uh, in play that are keeping us from seeing it but you know This documentary did leave me wanting more, you know, which considering that it is kind of, at least on its surface, a a soup to nuts biographical documentary, the fact that, you know, you do come away from it wanting to know a little more about this or a little more about this, I think just speaks to the quality of Turner's life and what she has to offer as both an artist and a celebrity.
2: It's really entertaining, though. I think that's worth emphasizing. Just because behind the music kind of stories can get pretty samey, and this one has enough uh, nuance to it, and enough like divergence from the model, and enough detail and enough performance to all be worthwhile. Just kind of as a just an opportunity to see her do her thing.
1: There's a neatness to this film that feels quite familiar to music documentaries. Uh, the way it lands on that fifth part has that kind of quality that you talked about in the last episode of being a little bit pat but maybe that's the way things are i mean they're showing they're showing where she lives seems pretty nice (laughs) you know she seems to be in a in a a good place oh that
2: sequence just quietly panning through that house oh my god so ridiculous and beautiful
4: well again like i do want to know more about her decision to i mean she didn't just like become a dual citizen like she renounce her american citizenship like that's kind of a big deal and i would like to have learned some of the decision making behind that and we we don't get it we get some lovely glimpses of her her marriage which as you said jen seems seems very loving and that is in and of itself very nice to see and this amazing estate, I guess you would call it, that that (laughs) she lives on now. But yeah, just again, in terms of her story, it does kind of wrap up a little quickly. Again, as with what's love got to do with it, it just wraps up at a, a different point, you know?
2: Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't care about her citizenship. I don't care about any of that. I just want to know the story of the life-size yet legless horse dangling from the <laughs> ceiling over her breakfast nook. Uh, that thing is kind of amazing, and I just want to know what the hell is going on there. Just give me 10 minutes on the legless floating horse.
4: We need Tina Turner's like HGTV uh, home decor documentary. <laughs> uh, cribs. But is there a feeling all the way... Version?
1: is not there a feeling from all the way back to River Deep Mountain High that Europe was just more mm-hmm. understanding of who she was you know and embraced who she was in a way that that America is very slow to yeah. i mean i don't i, I mean yeah, how the I mean that was one of those songs that's just too good for the world right know. <laughs> it's yeah. like
4: such a good Kurt loader line
1: <laughs> gives you just like absolute like chills every time you listen to it. So, of course, it can't possibly be successful, but um, except in Europe where they get it.
2: Well, Ike's line in there, you know, we, we don't get a whole lot from him. We see footage of him and we don't hear from him a whole lot. We feel his presence in some really chilling ways, as in that that interview where he's just sitting there in the forefront glowering but the the moment where he says like we couldn't find traction because we were we were too white for the black radio stations and too black for the white radio stations that was really telling i think both about the scope of her career and and where she was and why it took her so long to get to where she she ended up and actually just speaks to him as a businessman and as a person like an awful lot of his kind of sullen anger seems to come from his background, his history. Um, but I. it feels like some of it just came from understanding that the the music that he was making was not finding its way through basically America's weird racial issues and the ghettoification of music. You know, as he, as he was talking about kind of like how Europe does music differently and how it's a much more civilized way of, uh, of doing it. The, I, I actually felt something for like Turner.
3: Well, I also, I thought that scene in a way he was demeaning her as well, because she was working with another producer and, I, and he, they implied that she resented that. And, you know, that's one of the things that I think this documentary does really well, that what's love got to do with it didn't do, which is in what's love got to do with it. A lot of the, you know, the evidence of the abuse in the relationship was in these big volatile moments and, and rape scene and, and the fights that they would have. But this documentary captured those little moments that to me were as uh, illuminating about the abuse as anything else. Like when he's saying that in that interview, they panned to Tina and you can just see that she's just swallowing a lot of feelings. Like that's Mm -hmm. just what what I got from that. And then there's another scene later in the movie that's footage of them in the recording studio. And I think one of the backup singers is asking a question and Ike's addressing it, but maybe not quite answering what she wanted to ask. And Tina jumps in and says something And he walks toward her and you see her flinch, like she's so prepared to be hit in some way by this guy. And that to me was as sad and telling as a lot of the scenes and what's love got to do with it. And so the way that they addressed it here, I I thought, again, was just a lot more nuanced and really gave you a broader picture of things.
1: So one thing I wanted to ask everyone before we move on to connections is this very interesting issue that comes up in the film about... Tina Turner's reluctance to tell her own story and her motives for telling her story, which are very specific and very calculated at certain times to, to that interview with People Magazine in 1981, uh, to the autobiography she wrote with Kurt Loder and to this documentary in general. I was curious just to hear your thoughts about what that says about her and, then, and, and how, this, how she's almost been kind of haunted by her own story against her will.
4: I mean, I think it's upsetting to witness, especially like in the scenes in the documentary. You know, we've already talked about it being brought up, like at the Mad Max junket, or maybe we didn't bring that. Maybe that was in your review, Jen. But the, the scene at the Mad Max junket where uh, Ike's arrest is, is brought up, and she's just like, you can see on her face, like, why, why do I have to answer this? And also like, I think it was, was it Hollywood squares, you know, where, where's, mm-hmm. where she's asked like, where's Ike? And she's like, not here. <laughs> like,
2: um, oh like I, <laughs> she actually says, uh, I hate to correct you on this, but I think it's What's really it? important. She says something like, I don't know. And <laughs> she says it in a really, I think almost calculatedly flippant way. Mm-hmm. That's not just, he's not here, but Why would it be my job to answer that question? Like, she's really dismissive of it. And then the sound goes down and music plays, but you can see that she's still, like, bantering Mm -hmm. um, with the host and saying more stuff and laughing. And I I really wanted to hear what the rest of that was, because it seemed like the kind of situation where they might have, like, pressed to the point and she might have had to find new ways to diffuse it.
4: But yeah, so like all those scenes of her like being sort of confronted with her by Ike, although I think the Hollywood Squares one was before the People article. So that was just like more her trying to strike out on on her own. But when you hear her talk about like, I just wanted to tell this story and be done with it. It's hard not to like think that she's being a little naive <laughs> in, in that moment, and I do not want to sound patronizing or, or anything here, but the idea that you could tell this story of a type that was not being told about, you know, celebrities and, and abuse and and all this stuff, that you could tell it at that time and that people would just move on, I think is. Like It's certainly understandable why we would want that to be the case, but I think it's also kind of, like I said, naive on her part to think that that would be the case.
3: Well, I, th- I think that's true. I would also say one of the things that comes through in, in Tina is just how poorly equipped the media was to mm-hmm. talk about this stuff because people weren't talking about it. Like That People magazine article, the fact that she spoke about all this in such detail and with such bluntness. And when they show the cover of that issue, the tease to her article is like, Tina, out on the prowl without Ike. I'm like, excuse me? That's yeah. what you took away from that interview? Yeah. What yeah. in the world?
1: Yeah. The author reading his own prose was like, no. <laughs> no you're
2: you're really proud of yourself, there, buddy. Okay.
3: Yeah. And 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 that was something I thought about a lot too, is is um when we hear we hear her talking to the guy from People who um, I apologize, I can't remember his name. And and also to Kurt Loder. And I kept thinking to myself, I wonder how this would have been different if she were talking to a woman or mm-hmm. a black woman. You know, her, her story was always always being filtered through predominantly white and, and often male media. And I hadn't really even thought much about that until I was watching this documentary. And the, and like you said, it was naive maybe to think people would stop asking about it, but just the trauma of that. Sure. like you You, you see it more clearly when you're watching her get asked about it over and over and over again. And as her husband says, it it is like it's like PTSD, just having to go back and revisit that stuff over and over again.
4: And it certainly explains her reluctance to revisit it even now. Like like Mm -hmm. she didn't have to do this, and she knew that this would come back up in this documentary. So I think like it's interesting to think of like what her decision making process was this time around, because I don't necessarily think she came to this documentary with the same hope that this would put an end to the Ike conversation. I think she came to it more with the desire to expand that conversation to encompass more about her in it.
2: For what it's worth, I never took the phrasing, uh, the way she put it to be, I'm going to tell the story and then nobody's ever going to ask me about my abuse again. I took it much more as And then it'll be out in the open, and people stop asking me, where's Ike? Uh, Why aren't you hanging out with Ike? What happened Mm -hmm. with you and Ike? Like, It seemed to me like what she wanted to put to rest was this almost casual curiosity about the state of her relationship, Mm -hmm. and I doubt that she wanted to relive and relitigate the abuse over and over and over again as she does, but... I personally just did not get the impression from kind of how she phrased that, the opening gambit, that she thought it was all going to go away forever and never be talked about again. It was just that people would stop asking the wrong question. And that Hollywood Square thing, like, where's Ike, is the wrong question. Like, hmm. the even more flippant answer would be, well, he wouldn't fit in the square. You know, <laughs> everybody gets their own square. There's a degree to which continuing to answer that question in a light or silly or flippant way Wears on people, you know. It's I read a lot of advice columns because I'm just fascinated by people and their problems. And talking about somebody that you've had a a bad break with for whatever reason, you know, whether it's a a toxic parent or an abusive partner or like even a brother or sister who's like harmed you in some emotional way. There are a lot of people who just don't want to talk about it. But having people ask constantly, you know, where is this person? What's the status of your relationship with this person? Can also just make you feel like you've got a toxic, painful secret. And it seemed to me that what she was talking about was more getting the secret out in the open. So people would stop asking her light questions or the wrong questions. That's very fair
1: so there are a lot of you know interesting parallels or contrasts between the tina turner story uh who gets to tell it and how it gets told with tina and what's love got to do with it so we're going to pause and be back after the break to talk about the connections between these two films
0: roger came to me asking me if i would be willing to give the story to the press and I was afraid to put it out because of what I might receive from Ike. I called close friends and everything. And I didn't know if I should do people and, and you'd let publicly say it, you know, finally. I didn't really know too much about the backstory and nobody knew about the traumas that she went through. You know, I just was looking for a simple comeback story Little did I know, you know, there was this whole legend uh, that came about. I didn't know what to expect. I wanted to stop people from thinking that I and was so positive. I mean, it was, it was that we were such a love team or a great team, and it wasn't that, like that. So I thought, if nothing else, at least people would know.
1: Now it's time for connections. When we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common, you know, one element of the Tina Turner story that we can't get away from is trauma and and abuse. I mean, that is part of the story. It's part of what makes her inspirational in the sense that she was able to rest herself away from this relationship and find success and find some measure of happiness on her own. uh, But the way these two films deal with this fact of her life are very different.
4: Yeah. I think. Jen was uh, summarizing it really well in the in the first segment of this episode when, you know, she kind of noted that in Tina, you know, we're not seeing the uh, abuse the way that we do in uh, what's love got to do with it. It's really like, you know, show versus tell in in these two films when it comes to this abusive relationship. And they have very different effects, you know, and I think that certainly what slav got to do with it is more visceral and and horrifying and and difficult to to watch those those scenes in particular but as we talked about in the first half you also maybe lose a little bit of the nuance in terms of just like the scope of this abuse beyond the actual physical violence you know there's a lot of you know gaslighting and different sort of types of uh, psychological abuse at, at play uh, in, in this relationship. And I think that Tina allows for a little more exploration of those elements um, while also allowing Tina Turner herself and just like the other storytellers in the film to kind of engage with the lasting trauma of that relationship, whereas What's love got to do with it is just very much in the moment of it. So together, I, I mean, I don't want to say they like complete a full picture together because like it's something that you can never really fully know un- unless you're in it. But I think as sort of bridging the gaps in the Tina Turner story, they really kind of need these two films together to give you the, the full scope of what she endured with Ike.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a visceral quality to what's love got to do with it that isn't in the documentary. I mean, and I think we can see there are moments when those, when they sync up. I mean, like the bit in What's Love Got to Do With It when she gets sort of dragged into the room past the children. I mean, we hear a story so similar to that or stories story similar to that in the documentary about her being kind of closed off in the bedroom and being abused. And, and then certainly the children are around to hear all of that screaming and violence. And it's one thing to say it and it's one thing to show it. And, and I think there's, it's risky and, and unusual i think for a inspirational touchstone <laughs> pictures production to you'll know, get into that level of abuse to get into you know marital rape i mean this, this is a it's a very tough watch and, and it takes a certain amount of integrity to, you know to be as explicit as the film ends up being
2: that honestly really surprised me in a disney made movie <laughs> you know because it's not tasteful it's not sexy it's not exploitative it's not any of the things that these things can so often be on screen it's just ugly and frightening
3: there's another scene the contrast between the way that what's love got to do with it and this documentary handles which is when she takes all those pills and tries to kill herself Mm. and and maybe this gets to like the accuracy element but they play that very differently and i found just the the impressionistic visuals that they use in tina and then you hear her talking about being in the hospital and how her pulse started again as soon as Ike talked to her. And there was something very chilling about that. And I just, I didn't get that kind of a woe moment from the way they depicted that same event in the other movie. I forget exactly the way she phrased it, but she was like, I was so scared of him mm-hmm. that just knowing that he was in the room, like that shook me back to life, essentially. That's quite a statement. And then what's
4: Love got to do? Correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't he say something like, "If you if you die, I'm gonna kill you" or something like, yeah, he like said th- something like that? And, yep. and, and again, it's kind of an example of like a weird almost laugh line in a in a very inappropriate place. Right. Um, I, I don't think it fully plays as a laugh line, but again, as just sort of a, a contrast point of this moment.
2: It doesn't 100% work, but I do think that it's explicitly trying to get across the sense that in this moment of possibly losing her, literally the only thing he could think of to do was to threaten Mm. her. Like Literally the only comfort he could offer her was a promise of more abuse, essentially. For him, affection actually looked like abuse. And it's I don't think it's laughable, because I think it's sad more than anything. In that moment, it's not exactly scary, because literally, what is he going to do to her if she dies? But it's just another kind of ugly moment of, like, he... He doesn't have – here's the thing that you get very often in real-life abuse stories, in fictional abuse stories, is the charismatic person apologizing. I guess you get that moment in What's Love Got to Do With It where he leaves the present for her. But there's that one thing, and we don't engage with her opening it, and we don't engage with him ever bringing it up again. But for the most part, he doesn't apologize to her and say that and cry and say that he's he'll be better next time and that he didn't mean to do it, um, which is a classic abuser playbook.
3: He pretends it doesn't happen. Toward the end, he does. Like when when they're after she started to get some traction on her own and he comes back with the flowers, like that's the closest it gets to doing that.
2: Even so, he doesn't. He says something to the effect of like, you know, I know it wasn't all wonderful. And it's not an, it's a non-pology. You know, it's a classic non-pology. It's as close like, as he's able to get. <laughs> yeah, we you know, we both did some things that we might regret, <laughs> but uh, now we should now I'm I need money and we should work together again. But for the most part, especially in what's what's left, got to do with it, he follows his abuse by literally pretending it didn't happen. You know, when she comes back from him hospitalizing her he gets on her case about spending time in the hospital when they need to be working as though she'd been hit by a car or something. And she also sort of, she just says, you know, okay, I can, as if it didn't happen. And it's just uh, an even uglier way to deal with abuse than the, the cyclic apologies and courting and a uh, honeymoon period that sometimes follows uh, lashing out.
1: Well, one thing I w- I would say in the film's, favor one thing i appreciate about the film uh because it was so focused on this relationship is how the power dynamics between them shifted as the film went on and he became weaker and she became stronger and then at a certain point you know that was enough for her to make a break from him i mean there was something there's a point where he just he is uh he's at his most powerful at the very beginning you know when he is when he's so easily seductive and he's on stage and he represents all of this you know, promise to her and of course he has so much control of her over her life uh, when she's young and uh, they're together and uh, he's fearsome but I think as he loses control of his career as he loses control of his you know as he gets into s- substance abuse uh, and as she finds her starts to find herself a little bit more the, the film I think tracks those kind of crisscrossing trajectories quite well.
2: You know, I think it's very interesting that both movies kind of end with touching a little bit on what became of him, but the what's love got to do with it ends with, uh, you know, he used drugs and went to jail and it's very much intended as a, he got punished. Whereas Tina mentions the rock and roll hall of fame induction, but doesn't mention his, like the drug conviction and, and jail as though, They don't need for him to be a a villain that got punished in a a classical narrative arc kind of way. And as if they don't want to go down the road of uh, seeming vindictive, I guess, Mm -hmm. in a well, it was this this was unrelated to that. But uh, the point is that he went to jail. um, So that's great, I think, is how it comes across in the first film. And they don't touch on it as though it might kind of besmirch the tone in the second film. Before we move
4: on from this connection, because I feel like this may be the the place to bring up something, uh, a, kind of a small thing about Tina, but something that stuck out to me. One of those sort of impressionistic touches that, that Jen mentioned was these shots we get of their home kind of overgrown and falling apart and ramshackle. And I'm not clear if that was their actual home if it was the set from what's love got to do with it um like there did anyone like research this or find out anything about what those shots were of specifically
2: or i didn't research it but i did very much get the impression from the way it was framed that that was the the actual home yeah because my understanding was that parts of what's love got to do with it were shot in their actual home
4: Oh, okay. Well well, I guess that, that would make sense. But I think like having these sort of, you know, low-lit, you know, shots of this crumbling home that they shared during this point in her life is another way that Tina sort of telegraphs the the sadness and the the trauma of this period in her life without showing us as explicitly as, as what's love got to do with it. It's just like another very kind of subtle touch that brings across the the feeling of, of this story more than any specifics of it.
3: And that's very much in contrast with the shots we were talking about earlier of her, her home in, in Switzerland. Oh, of course. And I And I feel like that was a deliberate choice to show this is what her home looks like now versus what it looked like then.
2: Yeah, the shot of the the half-drained pool choked with leaves and surrounded by old leaves as contrasted with the the sequences that we see with that pool and what's love got to do with it, uh, at least just during the, the happier times mm-hmm. around that pool. It, it does feel like sort of a metaphor for, you know, this is comparatively where their relationship went.
1: You know, one of the interesting connections here is uh, that the connection is so direct, I mean, that we have a section of tina that deals with the making of what's love got to do with it and we can see in one incredibly awkward press conference uh with uh angela bassett and tina turner tina's ambivalence about this project's existence and whether it's uh does right by her or or not and and then we can contrast that with Angela Bassett who is clearly and justly quite proud of her work in this film and is, is out there you know at the premiere or whatever whatever press conference this is representing, trying to put the best possible face on this story when, when I, I think she's not quite getting what she would want or hope for from the, the subject of the movie herself.
2: I mean, bringing Bassett in as an interview subject, just to talk about the impact of Tina Turner, I think was a little bit of a coup and uh, just a really good idea. And I think she, man, I love Angela Bassett so much. Um, I think she just really, really communicates what having Tina Turner kind of out there as a role model meant for her and uh, potentially for other women. I really enjoy her uh, interview segments here and I I think it's significant that they come back to her close to the very end to kind of put a a cap on the entire thing in terms of talking about uh, Tina's career and just sort of what she meant as a performer.
1: Do you think that the film kind of gives short shrift though to Tina's misgivings about the feature? I mean, especially if you do have Angela Bassett on, on hand, I mean, there's not, doesn't seem to be like there was any real follow up on what's a pretty big issue i mean if if you you know again you look at the wikipedia page for what's love got to do with it you can you see some quotes from tina turner that are not terribly flattering of the movie and about her portrayal as as a victim i think she felt that that struck sort of the wrong chord and and i think that we see throughout the film of the documentary of course um lots of evidence of tina turner being very reluctant to share the story and being uncomfortable with how it's brought up and how other people can control and manipulate that story outside of what she can do. I don't know. I felt like that could have been dealt with a little bit more in the documentary.
3: I don't know. I, I felt like the press conference did a fair amount of that work just by putting it on the record as with her saying like exactly what you just said, that she hasn't watched the movie and she's never going to watch the movie because she doesn't want to go back <laughs> there and revisit that. And, and I think really the point of that was to just, again... As part of that running theme of how hard it has been for her to keep talking about this stuff, like, and how hard it has been her whole life to just kind of put it behind her. But, you know, on the flip side of it, I mean, she still showed up at the Venice Film Festival to be at the press conference. She Mm -hmm. still recorded whatever she needed to record in terms of any of the music that she did. Like, she wasn't so opposed to it that she didn't take steps to support it and uh, in certain ways. So I don't know, maybe they just didn't want to make it into a bigger issue than it was other than to just get her on the record as saying that she didn't really want to watch it or, or see it again because it, it didn't feel like an accurate reflection
1: that's her too in a nutshell right though i mean mm-hmm. she will show right. up under under mm-hmm. uh, under any circumstances <laughs> whether she wants to be doing it or not she's going to step up and perform and and um and that's something that she did in that press conference i mean it's interesting to me you know i mean the thing we, we forget and in in that we need a documentary like tina to remind us is that um as viewers, as fans, we have that distance to be able to look at the Tina Turner story and be, you know, inspired by how she was kind of able to get through this two-decade-long traumatic period in her life with Ike. But what we can appreciate, of course, is that this actually happened and that Tina Turner is a human being and that this extremely long period of her, her life has left uh, lasting scars and memories that she is understandably reluctant to engage with.
4: One thing that I did wonder about this after watching Tina is if it does still bother her at this point in her life, or if she has moved on, like she seems to have moved past so much in her life. I, maybe this is a point where we bring up her, her Buddhism, which both films also engage with, Briefly, but in Tina, I think very memorably, you get another very interesting montage with her her mantra montage with her mantra. Uh, you get montage, yes. You get, you get a very interesting montage there. But I think Tina, especially, kind of insinuates that that was a turning point, not just in her relationship with Ike and what kind of allowed her to escape. But as the years went on, maybe allowed her to come to terms with it in a way that, you know, how she felt about it in 1993 is maybe not how she feels about it in in, in 2020. And she's maybe made peace with the film is, is, I guess, what I'm what I'm trying to say. And maybe that is why Tina, the film as an extension of Tina, the person doesn't dwell too much on, you know, quote unquote, setting the record straight. Yes. Um. Speaking of setting the record straight, should we should we talk about some of the uh, moments of inaccuracy and, and elision in in I think both of these films. I already kind of brought up that uh, Tina kind of skips over what I find to be a very interesting pivot in in, in her life, uh, becoming a, a Swiss citizen. But it also, again, kind of glosses over her children and in her relationship with them, um, despite the, the film being, uh, dedicated to Craig. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's obviously a lot to talk about there, uh, in terms of what's left lot got to do with it too.
2: Something I really hadn't thought about until, uh, just a few minutes ago was the fact that in both of these movies, we get segments about the... The divorce um, decree, basically, about her willingness to walk away, and in what love, what's love got to do with it? It's walk away with nothing except her name. In reality, it wasn't quite that that bad. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. I don't believe either of those movies in any way mention custody of the children as part of the divorce case. I think they were
4: all grown at that point, right? I think I think yeah. they were all adults yeah, I think they, they, at, at that, okay, that point. Well, I would, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, that would that would certainly explain it. Then it, it just it seemed, uh, it seemed like a weird thing to to not bring up. But uh, again, with both of these movies, we so completely lose them, um, as characters and as people that it is sort of difficult to track that uh, that aspect of it.
1: And I think there's kind of something to be said about the difference between. You know, an authorized and unauthorized biography. I mean, this is this was made with the participation and support of Tina Turner herself, and that gives us a lot of things we wouldn't get if, if it, we we wouldn't get her. Uh, I don't think we'd get. You know, a lot of the a lot of parts of the story uh, might be missing. But I, I was reminded a little bit of my responses to the two recent sports documentaries: the big Michael Jordan doc, and then the Tiger Woods doc one of which was made entirely with you know michael jordan which was a uh an authorized biography to say the, to say the least and then tiger woods which was made without his participation and in the contrast between those two films and the, and the amount of candor that the unauthorized documentary was able to achieve you know and, and the psychological depth that was able to mine uh was so striking to me and i i wouldn't say this is not Tina is not on the level with the Michael Jordan doc in terms of just being an organ of its, you know, subjects, you know, like a PR film. I mean, I like I enjoyed it immensely, but but still. But maybe there is something missing here. Maybe maybe that, you know, and I mentioned it a little bit with how you know certain her misgivings about the film uh, were, were not maybe not as frankly addressed. But maybe there are small ways in which the narrative has been softened a little bit. I mean, and you can feel that patness again in that fifth part. It just, it does have that music doc, you know, arc to it that, you know, that's very conventional and maybe, and maybe the story just suits that, but it still felt a little conspicuous to me.
3: Well, one, one big thing they don't address. And this is something that what's love got to do with. It couldn't have addressed because it didn't go this. She hadn't lived this, this far into her life at that point Is she's been dealing with a lot of illness. And I think that's probably one of the motivations for her to say, you know, I'm going to, this is my farewell to the American fans at this point, because I believe she had cancer at one point and she definitely had pretty serious kidney disease to the point that she had to have a transplant and her husband provided the kidney, which I think is an extraordinary story that should have been in there. Um, but maybe they mm-hmm. didn't. I want more of their love story yeah. to contrast
4: mm-hmm. uh, the all the Ike stuff. You and know? it's not
3: that they, I, I don't think that they necessarily are super private about it. I mean, they talked about it uh, in, in an interview with Oprah Winfrey. I think they even talked about it with other media outlets, too. So I just thought it was odd that they didn't bring that in unless, you know, she just felt really strongly that she wanted this to be a summation of her life and not bring in any of those kinds of maybe sadder elements of, of of her life at the end there. But yeah, I mean there's definitely details that they that they leave out for sure.
4: I think maybe this is the point where we need to talk about the rape scene and and what's love got to do with it, which is fabricated in the way that we see it in the film. But there was also sexual abuse in this relationship, which is a even more difficult subject to unpack in the context of a marriage. And there's a lot of nuance there in terms of where consent happens in, in, in a marriage. And I think that What's love got to do with it as a film is maybe not equipped to to explore that nuance. So in its place, we get this this rape scene that is is very difficult to watch. and i I gather that is something that a lot of people do not care for in in, in the film. and I think, uh, Tina Turner herself does not uh, approve of it being there. And I certainly did not enjoy watching it. And and rape on film is just sort of a very fraught subject in, in any capacity. But in terms, again, of sort of giving shape to the full scope of the abuse that was inflicted upon her, I think it is sort of a stand in for something that is a lot less quote unquote straightforward than a rape as depicted in the film.
2: I mean, even the interviews that I've seen with her talking about how he would beat her and then drag her off to the bedroom. And uh, she, she said something to the effect of it was, it was like rape. Mm-hmm. And my thought is like, no, it was rape. We just Ooh. did not recognize it that, that at the time, culturally, right. legally, uh, morally, and so she didn't have the words for it. And it, it does feel like, well, what's love got to do with it specifically puts a face on it that everybody can recognize in order to avoid any potential nuance of, of people not understanding that that's what it is. And it's a weird way to go about it, but it seems more narratively appropriate than showing a, a sequence of quasi-consensual post-abuse sex scenes or you know, confusing to her as the victim sex scenes. You know, there's a lot there. I feel like they're trying not to elide over it. They're trying not to elide over the, the ugliness and messiness of it. And it doesn't, the way it's shot, and particularly uh, Lawrence's just kind of animalistic performance during that sequence makes me feel like it's not intended to be titillating. It's not intended, again, to be exploitative. They really are just trying to get at how bad it was, on an emotional scale even if they can't necessarily communicate exactly how it happened this is a rare case where i would actually buy into the well no it's not true but we're trying to get at the the true emotional core of it like in this in this one case i can see the argument for that
1: I 100% agree with Tasha on this. So it's a, on the. I really have to just. We have to mark uh, this. T- we have to mark this occasion. Uh, Among
4: everything else she has done, Tina Turner has brought Scott and Tasha <laughs> together in agreement on something.
1: I'm just agreement on, on the most disturbing scene of, of what's love got to do with it. But uh, I, I agree. I, I think the lack of ambiguity as to what is actually occurring within this. Marriage that this is a rape is uh, a good thing to have to, to for the audience to have to contend with to really get the full scope of this of this abuse, which was also sexual abuse, and so uh, I, yeah, that scene was hard to watch, but I think it's necessary.
3: Yeah, I tend to agree with that. It definitely is hard to watch, but as as Tasha really put it very well, I mean, it does communicate as clearly as possible that it was rape, and I think that trying to do anything more subtle, especially in a movie like that. Um, maybe would have been confusing. But I, I think even more so what, what's striking about that scene is just the way Angela Bassett plays it, there's like a moment where it's just like, the lights just go out of her eyes, mm-hmm. like yep. where she's just, she's just no longer there. Like she's disassociated from the moment just because it's the only way to survive it. And I found that very, very powerful, even if it was difficult to watch. So I, I, I tend to agree that like, of the things that were fabricated, that that at least seemed to have a good purpose for doing it, even if it's a disturbing purpose.
1: And I think to get into another connection here and hope maybe, am I making, let's see how smooth the transition I can make here. I think that one thing that the documentary does well and and that the, that the film does reasonably well is to try to uh, use her performances to tell the story as well, and and uh, and give the songs that we know her for some kind of emotional or biographical context uh, to where it's all more meaningful. I may, I may I mentioned, of course, her performance of "Help," that cover of "Help" uh, being so transformed by not just her take on the song but all that we've learned i mean it's a, it's the dewey cox thing again it's, he's got to think about his whole life before he sings it's kind of like that <laughs> <laughs> but but i, I appreciated that and, and you know and i think it, i think those performances just ha- end up having the depth that i think it was suggesting the, the emotional depth or the soul i suppose of, of those performances is deepened all the more by knowing the context of her life and what that the voice we're, we're hearing has sort of been through.
2: I'm going to move into a different aspect of uh, the performance sequences since that is, that's the connection we're exploring here. I, I, I want to get a little away from the, um, much like the movies themselves. There's, uh, maybe a little too much about the abuse in <laughs> given how much uh, other stuff there is to explore. So one of the things I, I actually meant to bring this up when we we're talking about what's the love got to do with it. I feel like we just, we cannot underrate the, contribution of uh, Ruthie Carter and her costume design. Mm, yes. <laughs> the costumes in What's Love Got to Do With It are just amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, very much so when they're trying to establish the period early on. But when we get into her performance costumes and how much they're designed to both kind of flaunt her body and enhance her movements, it tickles me how many of those costumes have some kind of like little flap just below the butt that seems to be the entire purpose is to like wave provocatively to <laughs> emphasize how much she moves her, her ass when she's dancing. But then we get to see the performance uh, footage in Tina and we see that these are really mm-hmm. accurate to the kind of things that she wore. The fringe dresses and the LeMay dresses uh, that were kind of form fitting, but like ch- the light on them changed as she moved. The really racy costumes and how she used to dance just in a in a way that wasn't Crass, but was kind of openly provocative. You know, she was, she was doing like cabaret shows and a lot of like her, her movements and her costuming felt very cabaret. This is something that I feel like both films. Really get the importance of uh, showing how she how she moved on stage, showing how she kind of weaponized her sexuality and weaponized the joyfulness of her performance and the joyfulness of her sexuality and how what a big part of it all the the costume she wore had to do with it. And with, with what's love got to do with it, we can point out the the particular person responsible for this. Ruthie Carter has a long, long history of working with Spike Lee and uh particularly working on like like black centric narratives. But I really wish uh, Tina it's not like Tina had time to go into the question of her costuming. But looking at some of these costumes, I was just like, I just want to know the story of like who was making these things, you know, where where she was getting these things that were like taffeta two sequins in a dream.
4: Well, and especially in like the early going of the career, it's it's uh, implied in uh, what's love got to do with it that and actually I think Tina says this too like they were they were styling themselves, you know her 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 and the Icats and presumably that was coming out of of their stipend. I'm <laughs> so
2: she wasn't getting paid much. The costumes
4: just keep getting briefer and briefer. <laughs> maybe yeah <laughs> I, I mean, and I think, it's reasonable to uh, assume that Ike maybe had a, a pretty strong hand in in how she what was uh dressing uh there's th- this is hair not costuming but in what's love got to do with it, that there's that whole uh, go and get your hair dyed blonde like Marilyn Monroe uh scene that you know and fries her hair off mm. and um that's sort of an, another example uh, of going back to what I said in the in the first half about there being these sort of little moments where the film kind of engages with the racial component of the Icantina uh, review at this point in time, and like where they were pl- the, the venues they were playing and the people they were playing for, and the uh, and, and and so on, and I think like the dye your hair blonde is another part of that. Costuming is storytelling, you know. Like this this is something that I've talked about on this podcast and, and elsewhere before. And I think like when you take that out of film and put it into real life and apply it to a a performer, a celebrity it still applies, you know, like how they present themselves on stage is really important to sort of the narrative around them as, as a performer. And I, I agree with you, Tasha. I I would have liked to have heard a little more about that in Tina um, while also not thinking that film needed to be any longer to accommodate (laughs) it. (laughs) So um,
3: yeah. I also like how Tina, you know, as any good documentary does, like it puts what Tina Turner was doing in the broader context. And there's a section toward the beginning where they're kind of contrasting her with like Diana Ross and the Supremes and some of the other Mm -hmm. black female acts at the time who were really trying to conjure this sense of sophistication, Mm -hmm. where she was just this unbridled, sexy, exciting performer that was very different. And, and I also found that, you know, I think Genevieve, you talked about juxtaposition in this movie, just the way that they are weaving in the performances. And it just, it really puts in such sharp relief, like this woman on stage looks as free as a human being can possibly be. And then at the same time in her life, personal life, she feels like she is lesser than, and she has to hide this shameful relationship that she has. And when in the latter part of the documentary, when she... Is able to come into her own completely on her own That she's finally like merged those two Sides of her life into one and it's Really a beautiful thing to see
1: Okay Uh, that's a great place uh, To wrap up our discussion Uh, What's love got to do with it is currently rentable On all the major streaming services Uh, Tina is now streaming on HBO max We'll be right back with your next picture show (laughs) Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we recommend, especially in this age of widely available digital media that we all need to catch up on. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, what in the film world is good for you?
2: You know, I have seen nothing new recently that... Wasn't terrible uh, or <laughs> hasn't come out yet, so I can't talk about it yet. So I was left a little dry here, and I, I started thinking about uh, Tina, the, the documentary in particular, and how much uh, Tina Turner's dancing reminded me of Mick Jagger's dancing. and. The degree to which, like, I I didn't know what she was like on stage until I saw these performance, these extensive performance clips in the documentary. And in the same kind of way, I didn't know that much about Mick Jagger's dancing on stage until I saw the Martin Scorsese documentary Shine a Light. And in the same sort of way, you know, again, not a big music person, I don't seek out concert movies or live performances. And I have never been to a Stones concert or a Tina Turner concert, for that matter. So in both cases, I think just seeing these performances... Especially with the, like the up close and personal access that uh, documentary filmmaking gets you, that that having a camera up close and on stage gets you. There's a moment in Tina where you, you see a camera person literally crawling up behind Tina Turner, holding the camera at calf level, and I, I couldn't tell if he was trying to get shots of her feet or what. It felt weirdly fetishy, but you get a, an access with a camera that's uh, just really remarkable and then you have that uh the people magazine reveal of uh, tina turner teaching mick jagger to dance and it all just kind of added up together into me wanting to say if you enjoyed uh specifically the performance elements of tina of like watching all of this footage you might enjoy shine a light if you have not already seen it it came out in 2008 uh, so it's you've certainly had opportunity um, but it's a Martin Scorsese concert doc. It's available on Prime Video. Uh, it's available on Hulu. And of course, it's rentable on all of the uh, the major services. But mostly what it is, is just the Stones performing on stage uh, with Scorsese's camera up close and, and personal among them. There's a lot of aspects of it that I found pretty interesting. One being the fact that the stage is just ringed by people who are literally inches away from Mick Jagger, who is crouching down to sing to them right in their faces. And they're holding up their phones and filtering the entire thing (laughs) through the process of, of shooting it for themselves. And it's like, of course, if you were that close to Mick Jagger, you'd want a record of it. You'd want to be able to say, here's Mick Jagger singing to me personally. But at the same time, Martin Scorsese is filming this <laughs> performance, and you think you can do better on your phone. You think it's more important to filter it through your phone than, than be there in the moment. That was fascinating. But more so, is just, oh, God, Mick Jagger's energy is staggering. Watching him dance is staggering. And I got a lot of the same sensation of just like watching his body move in ways that I'm not sure I knew the human body could move. I can absolutely believe that he uh, learned to dance from Tina Turner because mm-hmm. she she has some of the kind of same moves like that, like chicken leg thing where the the legs move in and out almost too fast to follow. So Shine a Light opens with uh, the revelation that the Stones have refused to release their set list <laughs> to Scorsese. <laughs> That's my favorite part and of the he movie. Is- <laughs> It's so good. The fact that he included it in there. uh, It's a real comedy sequence Mm -hmm. as he and his team scramble to figure out where they're going to put the cameras and how they're going to manage it, when they don't know what's <laughs> going to be uh, on stage. Mm-hmm. So, like even that alone is that it's it's a short film worth the price of admission, yeah. and then the rest of it is just a terrific concert movie. So, uh, yeah, if you enjoyed the performance parts of Tina, check out the Rolling Stones, Martin Scorsese, Shine a Light.
1: Yeah, the setlist thing was really cool, and and if you you know if you know Scorsese, I mean the last Waltz, you know he had you know, a team of some of the best cinematographers in the world and an absolute shot by shot plan for how he was going to film each song. I mean, he, he's like he's like an orchestra conductor. And so for them to throw that up in the air a little bit, you know, is kind of a fun, <laughs> a fun joke to play at his expense. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's a I think it's a fun movie for sure.
2: Absolutely. And uh, as I said, eminently uh, streamable if you already have uh, Hulu or Amazon. Uh, Genevieve, how about you? Uh,
4: well, I want to talk about a, a new-ish movie that uh, we were going to do a bonus episode for the Patreon. on, And we, we might still do it, but we opted not to at the time because uh, then and as of now, this film is still on premium VOD, which means you got to shell out 20 bucks if you if you want to see it. But I for one, think that it is worth it to spend that money to see Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, a, in my opinion, very funny film, uh, co-written by Kristen Wiig and Annie Momolo, who uh, also wrote Bridesmaids, uh, another film that I adore. But this, uh, Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, it's still a similar comedic sensibility, but definitely taken to a different extreme. Jen co-worker, uh, Jackson McHenry, described it as uh, Airplane meets Lisa Frank, which I think is a is a very uh, <laughs> apt description. Uh, I would also just throw the work of The Lonely Island, particularly MacGruber, into the mix as just as far as sort of the uh, comedic absurdity that this film uh, uh, traffics in. Uh, I should I should mention that uh, Wiegand momolo also star as the titular Marvin Star, and they sort of uh, sort of the backstory of these characters is. It was these funny voices that they talked to each other in and kind of cracked each other up in this sort of like upper, upper, upper Midwest uh, accent that the two characters have. And just from that sort of seed, this film emerged and it's just it's one of those films like the Abraham Zucker films that just kind of put joke density first, you know, like, like it's all about the gags, Uh, the sort of narrative and characterization all uh, function in service of the gags. And there are a a lot in in, in Barb and star that uh, some of which are delightfully weird. Basically the plot of the film, such as it is, is that Barb and star uh, go on vacation to Vista Del Mar it's just right there in the title I don't even need to really describe it (laughs) um but they uh while they're there, they cross paths with a a supervillain also played by uh, Kristen Wiig, whose character name is Sharon Gordon Fisherman, which I think kind of gives you a sense of the, the level of silliness that uh, this film is, is operating on. And uh, they also encounter a character played by uh, Jamie Dornan, who is surprisingly funny in this film and gets a very uh, memorable musical sequence. And I I won't go too deep into explaining it beyond that because it's definitely one of those films that sounds really dumb the more you try to describe it and certainly there are with such a high joke density there are certain things that are just too weird to function or just don't land but I think there's much much more that does it's a fun film it's a surprising film it's a bright and happy movie to to watch it just like it felt kind of like a vacation to watch it and i i thoroughly enjoyed barb and star go to vista lamar and uh maybe we'll we'll talk about it on the the patreon but uh i would urge you to uh regardless check it out did i have any of you seen it yet
1: no i'm such a cheap kid i'm just waiting for <laughs> to, to see it for cheaper because i think i think 20 bucks I think I'd be—I'm the only person in in the household who would watch it. Right, but it's a lot. So, it's a lot. If I, yeah. there's two people, so, it's like, oh yeah, okay, that's fine. Yeah,
4: it's a, it's a, it's a great date night movie, assuming that you know your your date has a, a comedic sensibility yeah, that still,
1: that she meshes doesn't. with she this. Ha- My wife doesn't yeah. have that. Like a McGru- she wouldn't like McGruber. but like you say, mm-hmm. it's like MacGruber. I'm like, yeah, I'm on board. Yeah. this is going to be great. <laughs> so so I'm waiting. And so
2: I just. I don't feel like the 20 bucks is a big deal. What feels like a big deal is rushing to pay extra to watch something when you have a thousand things that you could watch that you're already paying for. Like that's with all of the premium VOD stuff, it's just uh, that's been the case for me. It's just I'm not in that much of a hurry to cram this little comedy into my eyeballs when there's so many other things I could be watching.
4: Well, and I mean, I think that's
2: especially applicable to
4: comedies uh, and sort of just more lightweight features like this, you know, it's not like like this is getting nominated for oscars and you need to see it to like fill fill that hole in your viewing but but you know like like Steve and I watched this and our our two good friends uh Dan the the Bake Jakes and and Oliver uh also watched it like the same night and it was like sort of a collective viewing experience across state lines you know that felt right for it you know so i think like if you have such a scenario in in your life, it would be worth it for that, but I certainly understand not wanting to pay twenty bucks to watch Barb and Star by yourself on a Wednesday night. <laughs> but you know if you find yourself in the right scenario, I would definitely say go for it uh Jen, what about you? What's been good for you
3: so um not to make this entirely a promotional vehicle for Vulture. But uh, <laughs> we were doing this character actor week on the site and, and writing about a lot of great different actors. And we had a list of 32 best working character actors. And I had to write a blurb about Isaiah Whitlock Jr. And so I just started looking for performances of his that I hadn't seen. And I came across this movie called All Square. Have any of you all seen it or even heard of it?
4: No. no. I don't think I've even heard of it.
3: I hadn't either. And I was really pleasantly surprised by it. It's, it came out in 2018. It um, apparently won an award at South by Southwest that year. And it's set in Maryland. And I live in Maryland, which made it doubly bizarre to me that I had no idea it existed. And it was filmed here. It was filmed in, in Dundalk, Maryland, which is a suburb of Baltimore. And the plot of the movie is there's a guy who he kind of inherited his father's betting business. And so he's he's like the local bookie who takes bets on football, ba- basketball, whatever it might be. And things kind of start to dry up for him. So he decides to start betting on taking bets on Little League games, which are already heated as it is because of the way that parents are at these things. And it gets doubly bad because they're, they start to bet on them and then people who don't even have kids in the games are betting on them and showing up for the games. Um, <laughs> and the main character is played by Michael Kelly, who was in House of Cards, among other things. And he gives a really great performance in this. And as I started to watch it, I started to think, uh-oh, is this going to be yet another movie about a horrible man who does horrible things, but we're supposed to empathize with him? Um and it kind of starts that way, but it, t- it takes some turns where people are really like, you need to be accountable for your business. And you start to understand more about what's going on in his life and what has brought him to this point. And the the cast in it is fantastic. Like there's, as I said, Michael Kelly, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., who plays one of his good friends. Pamela Adlon is in it. She plays um, a woman that he like hooked up with in high school. And he starts kind of becoming friends with her, her son, which is sort of his entree into the Little League stuff. And the the young actor they cast as her son looks exactly like Pamela Adlon. Like, it is crazy. Like, I, <laughs> if you told me that was her son, I'd be like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so there's just a lot of really great performances in it. And, um, you know, it's baseball season. I mean, it, it, there's something also just wonderful when you find this movie you've never heard of, and it turns out to be really good. Mm-hmm. So you can find it. It's on, you know, video on demand. It's not 20 bucks. It's like, <laughs> I think three or four. So uh, perfectly reasonably priced for even one person. And yeah, if you're just looking for something like a character study that's really well acted and and nicely done. And and especially if you're from Maryland and you want to see some Maryland license plates and people drinking Natty Bo, <laughs> I cannot recommend it more highly. <laughs> Scott, it's over to you.
1: Yeah, so um, I'm going to switch gears. I had planned to do something else, but in the course of talking about Tina, I I kind of feel like giving a more full-throated... Recommendation to Tiger: The two-part HBO documentary about Tiger Woods uh, that was co-directed by Matthew Heineman, uh, who, who who's an extraordinarily good, good filmmaker who did uh, Cartel Land, in City of Ghosts. Uh, this is not like those movies, but I think it does show the value of the unauthorized. Biography: Tiger Woods, of course, is very controlled about his image. He's always has been. Certainly, once uh, Nike got on board, very careful about uh, the image he presents to the public. And of course, that image eventually that got tarnished by his behavior and things he he did and things that happened to him in, in, throughout the course of his life. I think it changed our perception of of him, but not necessarily his mystique. But with what, what the documentary gets at without, without ha- having his participation is this really rich psychological portrait and a very sad psychological portrait of this man-child who um, grew up in the shadow, you know, completely controlled by his father who saw him as uh, literally having a, you know, a God, as somebody who's going to have a godlike benevolent impact on humanity. And I mean, who, what, what person could possibly live up to that and in the focus on developing him as the world's greatest golfer and as this great global icon um, there's so much so many other aspects of his life and his development and his humanity that are left to you know in their infancy or left undeveloped and the documentary i think really gets into a lot of that and it gets into the the roots of his own his womanizing his uh eventually his substance abuse i mean there's a lot there and I, and i think that um i think it's just done with a lot of integrity and and uh and it was just an interesting contrast of course to the last dance which was very much Authorized and uh, and I and I don't necessarily think it got quite as much attention as it as it needed to get. And of course now Tiger Woods is sort of back in the headlines after you know this accident, um, which has been hasn't been determined to be anything more than an accident, but is you know compounds a lot of the tragic elements of his life. And of course also the film is is generous enough to show why he's such a transfixing and transcendent sports figure i mean his you know at his best he was he was such a magician on the golf course it's so focused and so unlike anybody else who had played golf before he just completely changed the game so all of that's part of it it's you know it's two two parts feels very tight to me um did anyone else see this one or just me
3: no i saw it i reviewed it too i, I thought it was very good as well
1: Oh, I'm sorry. I should have. I should have well, I looked that up. But I was sort of uh, improvising here. But yeah, I thought. I think it's a, a very, very nicely done. So Tiger, you can watch that and Tina on HBO. Stay in the tees uh, and, <laughs> uh, uh, and and w- see two two quite good documentaries. And that's it for this edition of the Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will drop on April 13th and April 20th. Genevieve, what do we have on tap?
4: The new movie Nobody follows a trend of revenge thrillers like John Wick or Taken, where seemingly ordinary guys unleash a particular set of skills when they come under attack. Here, it's a chance for Bob Odenkirk to surprise audiences again by playing a suburban dad with fists of fury. But the type of story nobody is telling has been such a staple of action movies for the past 50 years that it's worth opening up the revenge thriller and seeing how it works. And there's no sharper scalpel than Steven Soderbergh's semi-experimental 1999 film The Limey, starring Terrence Stamp as a British ex-con who travels to Los Angeles seeking justice over his daughter's suspicious death. Loaded with genre icons like Stamp, Peter Fonda, and Barry Newman, as well as character actors like Louise Guzman and Leslie Ann Warren, The Limey is both a complex, evocative thriller and a thoughtful comment on the genre itself. On our next episodes, we'll talk about Soderbergh's film and see if it can help us unlock Nobody.
1: In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of What's Love Got to Do With It, Tina, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show— You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days, Genevieve?
4: I am the TV editor at vulture.com where I have the privilege of editing uh, Jen uh, along with many freelancers, including occasionally Scott Tobias. Uh, (laughs) So yeah, yeah, pretty good gig. And uh, you can also uh, find me... Uh, occasionally on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Jen?
3: I am Genevieve's employee at Vulture. (laughs) I am a TV critic, and you can find me on Twitter at Chaney J. Tasha?
2: I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Scott?
1: Um, You can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, You can find my work at The New York Times, Vulture, Guardian, The Ringer, and other fine uh, publications uh and of course our absent co-host keith phipps you can find him on twitter at kfips 3000 and you can find his work many many different places uh, uh including uh vulture and in the, the ringer and uh tv guide and yeah, you know he, he works everywhere so um
2: and and the late lamented Mel magazine I know
1: exactly oh god that's so just de- so depressing and the late lamented Mel magazine which is full of eclectic writing uh that he and other people did and it's very sad that that, that place that dollar shave club could not extend its (laughs) lease any further than that uh uh, so before i get to this the the uh the boilerplate uh uh (laughs) closing information we want i want to thank you jen for participating and joining us in this discussion Uh, it was great having you on
3: Oh, it was my pleasure. I hope you'll have me back someday.
1: For sure. Um, you can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net and via Twitter at Next Picture Pod. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. And please also consider rating and reviewing us, which will help others find your favorite movie podcast. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for assistance producing this podcast. The next picture show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time.